0: Good morning, River Life Church. Um, as you can see, I'm not Greg. I was scheduled to teach or to preach next week, and he was going to do today, but he is very sick. So as a church family, why don't we take a moment, and I'm going to pray for him. If you could just, Badness Heights is that way, so if you could just extend your hand that way, and we will bless Greg while he's resting at home, Okay. Father, we lift our pastor to you. We thank you that he is a shepherd over us, that you have raised him up uh, for such a time as this and for such a place as River Life. And today we ask that your hand of healing would touch him, Lord, and that you would heal him, you would cleanse him, and you would set him free from this sickness that he has, Lord. We know that you are with him, giving him rest, and giving him your presence. So we thank you, and we lift him to you in Jesus' powerful name. And the church said, amen. All right, well, I'm very excited to be talking to you today. We are kicking off the relationship series. And for the first time in River Life's history, we're going to actually talk about parenting. Uh, most years, we've talked about relationships in in marriage. and. T- This year, we're going to look at having kids and raising kids. Um, We've got seven weeks of topics, so I encourage you to invite your family and friends to come and join you. In these next coming weeks, we're going to look at how to decide how to have kids, um, what's the number one priority for parents. We're going to talk about how to have unity in parenting. and, of course, kids and technology, we have to cover that. Uh, and then I'll be coming back to teach on blended families, uh, for hope and healing for blended families. But you need a mark on your calendar that on March 24th, the last week of this series, we have a special guest speaker, Dr. Ken Caster, who's a good friend of Greg's and mine. He is the associate pastor... Associate Professor of Youth Ministry at Crown College, and he'll be here to talk about raising up the next generation of disciples. But on that day, he's also going to do a two hour workshop after service. So from 12 to 2, he'll be uh, teaching us on raising up, um, stepping under, how to equip the next generation to lead. So tell your friends, especially on the 24th, to come and join us here. We give you a little time to run and get lunch and then come right back and we'll do the two-hour workshop there. All right, so today we're actually going to kick off our series by talking about what happens when you can't have kids. So we're going to talk about dealing with infertility and loss. Some of you might be experiencing this right now. Some of you know someone who has, uh, whether it's that they're struggling with getting pregnant or struggling to keep the pregnancy because there are miscarriages, or maybe even that there have been stillbirths or the death of infants. And so it's a pretty heavy topic that we're gonna talk about today And I invite you as a church family to um, come alongside those of us who are struggling and dealing with these things. If you can't relate, I know that you have family or friends who are going through this. Because the the stats show that anywhere from 10 to 14% of couples struggle to get pregnant or they struggle to maintain the pregnancy. And that doesn't even include people who are going through what's been called secondary infertility, which is where previously they were able to have one or two children, but now that they want to have more, they're unable to. And a lot of times people who struggle with secondary infertility kind of struggle in silence because they can't share it with people because most of us think, well, you should be happy, you already have one or two. Um, and yet it can be equally devastating and traumatic for them. In addition to the 10 to 14% of couples struggling to get pregnant, for women who do get pregnant, 10 to 20 percent of them will miscarry in the first trimester or the first 20 weeks of the pregnancy. So the numbers are pretty high. Um, In researching on Mm -hmm. infertility, I was really disappointed with most of what I found on the internet. Because most of the stories are about people who waited 10, 20 years and then got pregnant at the end. Well, I came across a book by um, Sheridan Voicey. His book is called Resurrection Year, Turning Broken Dreams into New Beginnings. And he chronicles his journey, he and his wife, uh, 10 years of struggling with multiple failed uh, in vitro fertilization processes, two years waiting to adopt and never got the call. And so they had 10 years where they were grappling with this. And he has an amazing quote that I think captures what people who are struggling with infertility and loss go through. And he says, as with our dreams, the details of our broken dreams may differ, but still they share some commonalities. Their sadness, a sense of unfairness, even jealousy towards those who have what we want. Life feels meaningless. We may battle feelings of failure, and we may harbor anger toward the God who has denied our requests. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I went back and read my journals from from my own history, from Greg and my journey with infertility. Uh, And I was reminded of the huge challenges and the immense heartache that comes with loss so greg and i dated all throughout college and then we got married a year after college so if you see our pictures there yes you are doing the math correctly in april he and i will celebrate 25 years of marriage thank you um Poor Greg had no idea what he was getting into when he married me. I, was, I had planned our life, and I was putting us on a 12-year family plan. The first five years, we would adjust to being married, and the sixth year, we would have our first child, who would be a boy, and his name would be Nathaniel Barrick. And then two years later, we would have a girl, and her name would be Alexia Rain. Two years after that, because two is, is actually research, that's the best number of years between kids, the third child would be a boy, and his name would be Ari Caleb. So, altogether, that would take 12 years. Well, everything worked great for the first five years because we didn't get pregnant because we were trying to prevent it. Six years, we're like, okay, this is it. I cannot tell you how many pregnancy tests I bought that year because I was sure we would have Nathaniel Barrick that first year. Two years later we weren't getting pregnant and we thought maybe we should see the doctor because technically the definition of infertility is if a couple is having regular intimacy and they can't conceive within a year that's considered infertile, that there might be some problems. So we started to see the doctor in two years into trying to get pregnant. Um, In year three, still nothing. And basically, I had forgotten who was in control. Clearly I forgot that Proverbs 16.9 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. A little bit later, Proverbs 19.21 says, You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. It never occurred to me to ask God what his plan was for us and kids. And the story of our infertility had many twists and turns, ups and downs and valleys. Um, Like any other broken dream, it's not just one event. It gets drawn out. Um, It's an exhausting journey. And Greg and I experienced so many conflicting thoughts and complex emotions along the way. Uh, and as I've reflected on our journey, I've, I've identified eight stops along the way that I believe most individuals and couples have to learn how to navigate. Um, now, not everybody goes through the, these steps in the same order, nor do people stay in, in each of the steps for the same period of time. But I believe that most of us will go through these steps, and then there are questions that come up at each stop. So as I share these with you today, whether you're going through infertility yourself or whether you know somebody who is, I want you to join with me in the emotions, the confusion, the questions, and eventually the hope and healing that God brings. So the first stop, when you begin to realize you have infertility or that you have loss, is identity and purpose. And the question that gets asked then is, do I still have value? Since I can't get pregnant, what's my worth? This is particularly hard for women because in the Bible, the word that's used a lot to describe an infertile couple is that the woman is barren. Barren means there's nothing. It's like a desert with nothing in it. Um, I kind of think of it as useless. So if that's the kind of label that gets put on us as women, what does that do to our sense of worth? For the men, often men will feel like, am I not man, manly enough, not masculine enough that I can't produce a child? Uh, in our Hmong culture, you don't get an elder name, a Belao until you have kids. So as a man, I may never be an elder, and there's also the pressure for men that they have to carry on the family name and the family lineage. So for us, Greg has, it's just Greg and his sister. So Greg is the last male in his Rhodes lineage. So imagine what that might be like for him. And then as a couple, A lot of people in the church and outside the church see infertility as a curse because the Bible says that children are a blessing. In fact, children are a reward from the Lord. So conversely then, if you don't have kids, does that mean that you're cursed? And does that mean that God is punishing you? So oftentimes couples struggle with these questions. And sometimes we might even think that we're not a real family yet because we don't have kids. Like, it's just the two of us. Does that that count as a family? So this idea that we're kind of unfulfilled and we're not complete yet. Well, I want to say to you, That whether you have children or not, you still have purpose and you still have worth in God's eyes. There's very important work that still needs to be done. Uh, In Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says that we are God's handiwork, all of us. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's it's good works. It's a plural. There are lots of works. There's not just one work of parenting. There is evangelism. There is spreading the good news. There is loving God and loving others. And so there is still a lot for us to do. The second stop that couples and individuals who deal with infertility and loss have to go through is what I call the blame, guilt, and shame. And the question that everybody asks is, whose fault is it? I get that question a lot. And for some reason, if you can't have children, you, you, you walk around this tag that says, you can ask me any question you want. So I've had people ask me, in the middle of a crowded room, a gentleman who I hadn't seen in like 10 years came up to me and said, you don't have kids yet? Whose fault is it? And then he said, how are your menstrual periods? in a crowded room full of other people whose fault is it as if that question if answered would solve all the problems but it doesn't because what it raises is this question of is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with my partner And that guilt that comes with wondering if, did I do something wrong? Did I, um, Greg was a water polo player and he swam all through growing up. So we're like, were your speedos too tight? I mean, you know, I mean, just all these questions. You have these guilt feelings of, could I have done something differently? Well, it turns out that approximately one third of infertile couples, it's due to the female, and in one third of the situations, it's due to the male. and in another third of the situation, it's either the combination of the two of them, or the doctors can't even figure out what's wrong. So it's pretty, pretty even there. But the really important thing that Greg and I learned in this whole process of infertility is that infertility is not a her fault or his fault. It is a couple's issue. If the two have become one, then in their oneness, they are infertile. So an example of this is one of the earliest people we read about in the Bible who the couple could not get pregnant was Abraham. Abraham. And his wife Sarah. Before they got pregnant or had their baby, they were actually called Abram and Sarai. And this is what Abram understood, and this is what he said to God in Genesis 15, verse 2 to 3. He's having a conversation with God, and he said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? You have given me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham knew that it was Sarah who couldn't have children, but Abraham understood that that meant that he also would remain childless. Unfortunately, his wife didn't think the same thing. In Genesis 16, verse 2, this is what Sarai said. So she said to Abram. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, God's plan all along was that Abraham and Sarah together would have a son. And through that son, all the descendants Abraham would have Descendants that numbered like the sand and the stars. And it was going to come through both of them. But Sarah was like, no, I'm the one who's infertile. But you know what? You can still have children with someone else. And perhaps God will use that other child. Well, it didn't turn out that way. God still allowed Sarah to have a son in her old age. But oftentimes we think of infertility as one person's fault. And I believe that infertility is a couple's issue, not a single person's. The third stop along the journey is what I call unfairness and jealousy. And at this place, We're usually asking the question, why me or why us? It seems unfair because it's so easy for somebody else to get pregnant. Why not us? Or it's so easy for people to keep the baby for nine months in their stomach and then give birth. Why us? Why can't we do the same thing? And then there's there's. A little jealousy that creeps in. So when Greg and I were um, still in California, we belonged to a young couples group. And every year a batch of people would get pregnant. And so, like, we marked the number of years we were infertile by the cycle of how many babies were born every year. And it got to a point where we I just stopped attending baby showers it made me sad and it just reminded me of what I couldn't have. And so I want to say to those of you who are struggling and dealing with infertility and loss that it's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay to say no to all those events. It's okay to be patient with yourself and with your partner while they're coming to terms with this You can still celebrate with people, but it might be easier from afar until you're ready to really celebrate with them. A fourth stop along the journey is marital stress. Lots of marital stress. Gets to the point where the couple will turn to each other and say, will our marriage survive this tragedy? Unfortunately, statistically, a lot of couples don't survive infertility or the death of a child because it's very stressful. In 1 Samuel 1, verse 8, we're introduced to Hannah, another female who is not able to conceive, and she desperately wants to have a child. So her husband, in 1 Samuel 1 verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Oftentimes, getting pregnant having a child can become such a high priority that some of us forget to prioritize the partner. And sometimes partners can feel like they're just a baby-making machine. And it can really hurt the relationship like it did here for Alcana. And there are lots of disagreements and arguments that come up when you're dealing with infertility and loss. You argue about when to try and when not to try and how much money should we spend on these um, reproductive services. And how many times do I have to go through that medical procedure? Or what other alternatives do we have? And when should we start planning to stop? Lots of questions that couples have to talk through. In Genesis 30, verse 1 through 2, we see Rachel, another female who was infertile. Her older sister was also married to the same man as she was, so they shared a husband. And This is what Rachel did. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob, her husband, any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? So you can kind of see how a relationship can become very tense And and full of resentment and hurt. And people can say words that hurt each other in the heat of the moment and in the desperation to have children. So the stress and the challenges can be so much that you might become desperate and try anything. So we see in the very next verses that Rachel comes up with an idea And she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him, Jacob, her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, Bilhah, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. The stress can get to the point where you might decide to do or try a solution that you would have never thought of before. and you, None of us knows what that's like until we get there and we're faced with those really hard decisions. But to survive the tragedy and the challenges and the stressors and to be able to thrive afterwards, Greg and I found that we really had to be united in our decision making. You have to wrestle with each other and talk about every decision along the way until both of you are comfortable with that decision. You can't just move forward on your own. And each couple has to think deeply about all the fertility treatments and options that are available to them. You have to pray through every decision point, wrestle and think through all the ethics of using assisted reproductive methods. You need to get wise counsel from godly people. And ultimately, the two of you have to agree before you move on. And then the other thing is, there's so many paths to take that we need to have a lot of grace for couples. You may have friends and family who have chosen decisions that you disagree with, that you may even believe it goes against biblical standards. But it's not our place to judge them because you don't know what they're going through. And even for those of us for whom God has said, no, you may not do that. It is for God to tell the other couples what they may and may not do. There's been a lot of research on couples who go through infertility. And the research indicates that men and women experience infertility differently. Women tend to exhibit exhibit more and deeper levels of anxiety and depression while their husbands tend to um, be more steady. But for both of them, the research shows that when they have a supportive spouse, that is the difference between whether they're gonna stay in the depression or they can come out of it more quickly and have A healthier life afterwards some studies have even found that couples who have gone through infertility together are happier and have more connection than couples who have children and never went through infertility but the key is that they went through it together they talked about everything and they felt like they were a team that supported each other through it So we need to struggle together, pray together, and move forward together. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. This idea of hope deferred is the fifth stop that all couples going through infertility and loss have to go through. This is where you ask the question, When will the waiting end? Like, either give us a baby or tell us, forget it, just move on with your life. But when will that end? And this hope, hope really does spring eternal. Those years of waiting to get pregnant, every month there was a reminder of whether you or successful or not and every month turned into hope and then despair hope and then despair and that roller coaster ride is exhausting it's almost better if there was no hope but there's always hope and there's constant reminders from people around you too because everyone around you seems to be getting pregnant which means maybe I will too. And then there's all the babies that you watch growing up and you're like, wow, it's been three years already. Okay, I have three years left. Maybe in three years I'll be pregnant. And again, that hope always there. But with hope and despair also comes sorrow and relief when you finally get an answer and either God speaks to you and you finally know or you get pregnant or none of the medical procedures work so now you know you really can't have any kids or you come to the end of childbearing age and you're like, okay, that, that door is closing. But there's almost a sense of relief that, okay, now... Now that question is off the table, and I don't have to go through that roller coaster ride anymore. So, hope and despair. Another stop along the way is faith and trust. And the question that gets tossed around is Are you still there, God? And, God, do you care? Sheridan Voisey, whom we quoted earlier, says, God is more interested in how we follow him, how we respond to the adversity in our lives, than he is on changing the adversity. He's more interested in how we follow him. Because there's something about adversity, about the trials, about the suffering, that reveals what's in our hearts. All the fear, all the anxiety, for me it revealed all the control that I wanted to have. It raises all the fears of who will love me? Who will take care of me when I'm old? All the confusion. In the darkest moments, Some people even lose their faith. But even those who can hang on to their faith might ask the question, God, I know you're there, but I don't know if you're good. I don't know if I believe that you're good. Because I don't see it in my life. And this is often one of the darkest moments in this journey of infertility and loss. But the amazing thing is that when you come through the other side, you can see that you can trust God and you trust that he is good even when he doesn't give you the thing that you want the most. He is still good. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Moses is about to take the Israelites into the promised land. They have been wandering around for 40 years because they were disobedient. And this is what Moses said. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. He did it to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. In order to stand the test of faith, you must either use all the spiritual disciplines that you learned before you went into that valley and that testing, or you have to develop new ones along the way. So for those of you who are struggling, for those of you who have family or friends who are struggling, come alongside them. Help them learn to pray, to read scripture, to worship God, to serve while they're waiting, to learn how to fast, how to be in silence before God. All these things will be helpful. In the middle of all of that, it's really important to stay open to God because oftentimes it's in those suffering that God reveals Himself in ways that we may never even get to to know Him other than through the pain. So stay open and teachable. A seventh stop along the way is grief and mourning. question that we ask there is, will the pain ever go away? First Samuel 1 talks more about Hannah, who wanted to have a child, and this is what it says. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's wounds, her rival, which was the other wife, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. This time of mourning, grief and mourning, can last years. For Greg and me, our time of mourning the loss of children came after many years of trying treatments three long years of praying every night for a child and then one night I had a dream in the dream Greg and I were in the middle of a fierce spiritual battle preaching and casting out demons and all of a sudden out of nowhere came this beautiful iridescent blue butterfly that flew in front of me. And I just remember the background fading and all I saw was this butterfly. And I asked the Holy Spirit, what is this? And the Holy Spirit said to me, this is the shadow of one who will never be. And in that moment, he interpreted for me that this was a child that I would never have. And then I heard God's voice, and he said to me, In my infinite wisdom, I have chosen to withhold children from you. In my infinite wisdom, I have chosen to withhold children from you. I woke up crying profusely, and Greg woke up, and he didn't know what was going on. I told him what had happened. And in that moment, we had a calm and a peace that came over us because we finally had our answer. We were not going to try anything anymore. God had spoken to us. And we can now mourn and grieve and let go. The final place we need to get to is to move on, because we do not want to camp and take residence at mourning and grief. Sheridan Voicy says that a broken dream isn't the greatest tragedy, but a life defined by it is. It's not a tragedy to be infertile, but it's a tragedy to let that define the rest of your life and keep you in bondage. So we need to move on, because the question is, can we live a full life without children? Yes, we can. Out of tragedy and suffering, so much good can come. Um, In Romans five, verse three and four, it says, not only so, but we also glory in our suffering, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. In Romans 8, 28, we read, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works all things, including infertility, including a miscarriage, including the death of children. Eventually, we will see, and eventually we can be happy, content, and rejoice again. So I leave you with this verse, Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never, befo- who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. We are a church that loves our children, and we empower them to be a vital part of today's church. But even as we honor and celebrate children, let's not forget to walk gently and speak tenderly to our brothers and sisters around us who are dealing with infertility, who are dealing with the loss of children, are dealing with broken dreams I knew this was going to be a long talk I tried to cut as much out as I could but I really couldn't so we're going to end our service with this and if you would stand up if you could think of your family friends or maybe it's yourself who's going through infertility or loss I want you to pray quietly for that person, for yourself, while I close. Father, your word is true. Your word says that we will still be able to sing and rejoice even as we live with not having children, even as we live with the loss of the lives of little children. Lord, I pray that as a church community and family, we would be sensitive to those around us who are living with this reality. Give us gentleness, give us kindness, give us your eyes, give us the wisdom to come alongside them. Help us, Lord, to be a community that celebrates children. And loves those who cannot have children. May you bless us with many spiritual children, and we thank you for redeeming these these broken dreams. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.